Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is the Giro d'Italia Stage 19B wrap-up and Vuelta Espana Stage 4 wrap-up. And what a very, very odd day in cycling. But nonetheless, the pod is still brought to you by Lacole. Maybe if everyone had Lacole rain jackets, we wouldn't have had the situation we had today. <laughs> they obviously supply the kit to Bahrain McLaren in the pro peloton. Bahrain McLaren wanting to continue the full stage today, uh, according to their statements later. But we'll get into that. But yeah, if you want to check out Lacole's kit, it's at www.lacole.cc. Link is in the show notes and enter code LR015 to get yourself 15% off at checkout. But this has got to be one of the strangest days. I was at dinner. I, I scheduled in dinner uh, with my partner because I thought okay, I can miss the first half of this stage at least because nothing will be going on. And then I come home and chaos is eventual, uh, just rained. So Benji, could you just give an overview of what went down before the race today and then right after the start? So I'll talk about it chronologically and I'll try to make it as chronological as possible. I could be off on some small details, but I'll try and base myself off the interviews of Veni, the RCS organizer during the race and some of the riders after the race. We also know that some stuff was reported before the race, but there was no clear intel there. So I'm basing myself better off on, well, Veni and the riders themselves afterwards, I would say. So firstly, we know from Kelderman's post-race interview that they went to the start and actually started riding this morning. And, well, chaos erupted because they apparently stopped after like 13 kilometers or 15 kilometers, according to Kelderman. And he stated that he was riding in a very cold, extreme weather at that point. And that the riders as a whole, is what he says, did not want to ride a 260 kilometers, 258 kilometer stage in uh, full rainy conditions. And apparently, according to Venny now, because I'm having to switch between people's statements to try and build a full story here, Venny said that uh, he said that at this morning they were at the start. And the Lotto Sudalbus was still fine there. They started riding, and after those 15 kilometers, the race stopped, like we said from Kelderman's statement. And at that point, they started discussing. I think it was Adam Hansen with Veni that was the most animated discussion. And apparently, Adam Hansen was trying to get the shortening underway and discussed that after the CPA meeting that happened yesterday evening. Now, Short history, CPA is a writer's union, and they've got this Telegram chat group, which to me sounds a bit odd to have it in Telegram, but we'll talk about it later. They've got this chat group in which yesterday evening they apparently discussed some of the writers, because each team has a few writers in there that discusses their rights as a writer and as an employee and as a just general, a working person. So everybody's got a right to that. But... They discussed that, and it was a bit unclear for people because, according to members of that chat, some members of that chat say that they agreed to a situation to try and strike at the start of the stage. Other riders that are in it don't have a clue what's going on, and apparently that was the reason that Adam Hansen stepped forward and was talking to Venue at the start, and they were trying to, well, get this race shortened because it's unfair to have like a 
a race like this, 250 kilometers at the end of a Grand Tour, after 5,000 Denivelle meters in the last two days and so forth. And uh, we'll give our opinions on that in a second, but let's just continue with the details here. Eventually, the decision was made to shorten the stage from 258 kilometers to 123, if I recall correctly. All in all, yes. a large shortening, and this is advantageous, I mean, towards some riders and is benefiting other riders. So, yeah, we'll discuss that in a second as well. Now, what is unclear about this is that there were teams that knew about it. There were apparently riders that just didn't know about it. And that's what makes it so confusing. Veni was furious during the race. And that interview I just spoke about where he said that they were discussing and so forth. Well, they came to that conclusion and the Lotto Sudalbas was already gone to the finish line, obviously, because you can't just, yeah, the buses don't follow the riders in the peloton. They already go to the finish line. So those buses were called back and the riders were into their bus. The riders were standing there in the cold for another 30 minutes before the bus arrived. And then they took their bus towards the actual starting point of today's stage, which was quite a few <laughs> miles later, um, ooh, miles, kilometers later. And that's with 123 kilometers to go. Now, what are the other details in this? We know that it's a fully flat bar course, so outside of just the length, it's not changing too much, but the length is quite important, obviously. Is there any more details that I should discuss, or is that roughly the uh, guideline that you want me to pull out here? Well, I think it's important to note that there was, there's been a lot of communication, particularly on Twitter and on Rye, during the stage and straight, straight afterwards, uh, and the riders have not been able to get onto Twitter, etc. Whilst that's been happening, uh, they have. We have had some rider quotes coming in after the race, and we have looked at all of them and read all of them. We waited an extra hour to record this podcast, but we can't wait any longer because I've got an extreme sleep protocol that means I've got to go to bed before six a.m. So I'm sure someone will say something spicy and have more information for us after we record but we're going doing our best now we did wait longer it's clear that there were riders that weren't told but during the stage before it had um before it had finished and venue had gone off in his massive rant on right the cpa tweeted uh that they were the reason that the stage had been shortened and i think they they put out a really weird tweet this is what they said thanks to the jury and the Giro organiser for listening to CPA request. The health is the priority, especially in this COVID period. Reducing today's stage will not diminish the show, but will allow the immune defences of the riders to not be put at greater risk. And then after the stage, we had, I think, uh, what was it? <laughs> we had someone else come out and say that well, it wasn't really anything to do with immune defences and COVID. Um, I think it was maybe Kelderman and even a CPA representative, Benji. I think yes, CPA the, representative, the Italian ones. He came out just after the race now and said that no, it was more just um, riders took this decision because they didn't want to face this stage with cold after fifteen thousand meters climbing in the last six hundred kilometers uh, in the previous day. So. 
it really like wasn't to do with COVID. Some also some background and context of what's been going on because of those stages. It means the transfers have been very long before and after the stages for the riders, and apparently they're quite underslept because because of that they're getting up really early in the morning. They're getting to their hotel really late, and yeah, because of these long stages. So that's some additional context as well. Obviously, it's been quite cold, uh, particularly yesterday's stage. I assume. That centre of the Stelvio was uh, certainly under the temperature of 11 to 13 degrees today. That descent off the Stelvio with wind chill would have been probably below zero. So, um, yeah, that yesterday would have certainly been a cold stage. So that was what was released during the stage. Then the stage continues. We'll get to that in a – oh, why don't we just do this – wrap up the stage now, <laughs> Benji, if it won't take very long. Um, obviously, Bora are wanting to – pace to get a stage win for Sagan in this 124k stage so that Sagan can get Chiclamino points uh, if he tries to take the win against Damar. FDJ said they had no interest in doing that. Uh, so a break goes up the road and I'll let Benji fill in who that was, but it, the break goes up the road and Bora just start pacing furiously with FDJ sitting on them. Do you, can you remember who was in that break, Benji? Campanats, Clark, Peo, Lockie Morton. Uh, first time we've seen him in this year's year. He went okay in this break. Journey for CCC um, Arme, Santa Arme, maybe as well for Loro Sidal. Am I missing any other riders? Yes, Marco Matiz was in there. He uh, actually dropped as one of the first riders, I think. Etienne Van Empel of Vinizabu, Nathan Haas of Gofidis, Alex Dowsett of Israel Startup Nation. I forgot who you already named, so I'm just going to continue onwards. Carboni for Bardiani. I think you didn't name Albert Torres yet for Movistar. Pretty good sprinter if he can stay with the group. And then you said Arme, Ilio Keister was there, Simon Clark, Mosca, and then the two you said already, Cherny and Campanat. So pretty large breakaway and all in all a breakaway with some strength to keep on riding because you've got time trial specialists in the form of Dowsett, Cherny and Campanats. And we know Campanats and Dowsett are pretty good pals due to their YouTube content. And therefore I think they spoke to each other in the neutral zone, well, the second neutral zone of today, and potentially plant this attack to try and go for it. And yeah, it turned out great for that group because they stayed away because the reason that Boro was pacing in the peloton was because they obviously wanted to try a last opportunity for Sagan and the Chiclamino, but they were the only team riding since Kupama obviously doesn't really mind the Chiclamino points getting away because if this breakaway would win, and Groupama is securing their Chiclamino. So Groupama was not interested this morning. Damar already said if the stage was long as well that they wouldn't be pacing. So in neither situation they would have been pacing. I also heard Damar say that he was for the race being raced full personally because he feels like that would benefit him. Although it doesn't really matter for him if it was shortened or lengthened i would expect personally looking at how he is good at shorter stages and long stages as well but all in all no interest no interest in catching the breakaway due to the fact that chiclamino was going to be secured and yeah the gap just kept growing 20 seconds 30 seconds 40 seconds and bora couldn't do it benedetti was the one riding and at a certain point bodnar came to the front and said no way that we're doing this and he just stopped and again then came to the front looking Come on, guys, what's going on? And yeah, they ended up stopping. So no stage win for Sagan, no Chiclamino for Sagan. And I think that one's decided unless someone gets out of time magically tomorrow, which I personally do not expect. Nah, so nah, I think Lamar has it. But obviously someone can crash, but I don't hope that Fodema 
So I would say that if nothing goes wrong, DeMar has Chiclamino right now. Isn't it funny that Sagan's team didn't drop anyone back to help him in hindsight on that stage for Chiclamino when DeMar was dropped? Just maybe five to eight minutes of work, and yet today in the rain and cold, they're having to commit the whole team to chase a breakaway. (laughs) Like it just... In hindsight, yes, but... I don't like I know hindsight. In hindsight. It's just, <laughs> I know, no, I'm, I'm not. It's just, in hindsight, it is kind of it is kind of funny um, seeing it happen. But, yeah, they were unfortunate because in that break, as Benji said, strong TT riders, Czerny, Dowsett, Campanats, and they were gaining. So, um, eventually, once obviously Bora sat up, everyone in the Peloton sat up. They were all laughing and joking, a lot of grinning and smiling, etc. And they had pretty much a recovery day today in the peloton after that first couple of hours they rode it in very very easy so it was going to be out of the break the winner decided there were various attacks uh Lockie morton went off the front campanas i think attacked but then the decisive one was a move from the ccc rider shani who's done very well in the time trials in this year's year at Italian. he's he's performed very well and a man who i think is not yet under contract next year he's someone definitely worth signing i think and he um yeah, he rode away and got a 30-second gap and no one was really able to bring him back. And it was because there'd been attacks before him and it's always the 30-second gap is not because obviously you're doing very good watts, but it's the timing of it as well and the fact that they were all looking at, looking at each other, Campanats, Clark, etc. Armey was sitting on a little bit and Campanats was having to do a lot of the chasing and had been doing a lot of the chasing. Um, but, yeah, he... He got away and it didn't look like he was getting brought back. Those TT skills came into effect once again. 3Ks, the gap was only down to 20 seconds when they were relaying pretty well behind, but it was all over and I think the gap was even a bit more than that. He goes into the finale, an actual pretty sketchy finale to be honest. I was like, Jesus, Cherny, you're going for this Shiro stage win. You're going pretty quick over this irregular surface in the rain, going through this right-hander with 200 to go. And he... But he's, anyway, he kept it upright, took the win, seemed very, very happy, seemed in disbelief, and I'm very happy for him. I'm still counting it sort of as a as a Grand Tour stage win in that the Peloton didn't just let them go. So Bora were pacing really, really hard. So I don't really see how tactically, if this was 160, 170Ks, I don't really see how it would have been too different, to be honest. Or do you, do you think it's not... I'm, I'm overstating it, Benji. Um, I'm just trying to give credit to the man for what I thought was still a pretty strong performance after some hard previous stages. I think the most credit we can give him as well is that his descending was really good. His cornering in descends was so surprising. Some shady corners that looked like they couldn't go at full speed. He just went through it like a maniac, a rocket through that corner. And I believe his attack was still very strong because it just came after this small hill where Campanats made that small attack earlier on and yeah he had the muscle to try and attack after that while some other riders were basically dropped a small group was created and that's the group he attacked away from and those riders in that group are not bad riders but one rider i do want to give a shout out to in that whole breakaway situation is the rider that dropped the most on that hill and came back to the front started chasing with the front group and was able to close down the gap a tiny bit to Czerny because it was 42-50 seconds. And then Kaisa came to that second elite group, well, elite group in the breakaway at least, the group with Campanards and so forth. And that gap went from 50 to 40 to 30. And eventually it was like 20 to 17 seconds in the last kilometer and a half. So 
I think the majority of the work there was done by Kaiser and also the somewhat leadership position because he kept talking to everybody in that second group, trying to motivate them to keep on writing, and they found a really good rhythm. So it's clear that sometimes you need a writer that is experienced in these situations to tell you that you can still catch somebody. And I think that's why they eventually came onto 17 seconds of Josef Czerny, who wins the stage and probably his most important victory of his career, knowing that he's also out of contract. This is beautiful. But I'm afraid that all in all, he's not going to be the topic that is said everywhere today because, well, you've got the whole race situation. Yeah, tell me. I reckon we, we, we've probably spoken the most about the actual race out uh, of any media outlet, <laughs> giving giving the stage a full 10 minutes. I mean, we didn't want to – yeah, so we didn't. We were discussing how we actually go about today and, yeah, that was how we were going to do it chronologically. And now we're going to get into what we actually think about what happened, I think, and some of the, the comments that have come out afterwards. So uh, just, just bear in mind as well as Benji reads these out, a few of these comments that have come out after the stage that – we're not getting the full picture from both sides, probably, um, and it's certainly possible that both sides, when communicating with the media, are providing a perspective on it that is favourable to them. And I mean, that's like with anything in life. But I just want to put that up front. Um, but we're just, well, what are some of the things that have come out after the stage, uh, particularly from Venue Benji and maybe from the CPA? representatives and even former riders uh like i think bernati and co so obviously directly after the race venue would be talking again he's a guy of many words in the media and sometimes often that leads to grudges by himself in the future so we'll be curious to see what he uh what he's gonna say about it but during the stage he said that someone will pay for this they will just try to get to milano first and then they will pay for this uh, he will he will try to pull riders in front of the court was also said in one of the interviews i'm not sure on what basis that is possible knowing that the race eventually made the decision as a follow-up on the strike itself so i'm not sure there's much to do there nonetheless we've got um a lawyer here to explain that so i'm gonna throw it to you is there anything that you think Vinny can do here re regarding suing somebody yeah uh, no, not really, because Hansen was acting in his capacity as CPA representative and if there was some semblance of a formal CPA request, then he acceded to it. Then he agreed that they would shorten the stage. So at that point, he's agreed with their request and they then do the shortened stage. The riders didn't refuse to do the shortened stage. Now, if he'd said, hey, this full stage is continuing as normal and then they'd refuse to now we're talking about maybe you'd have some sort of course of action against some of the teams for their riders refusing to actually participate in the race but he stuffed himself legally when he agreed i mean i'm not <laughs> i don't know what the law is in italy but i'm assuming when he agrees to do a shortened stage because they've strong-armed him well that's his fault he yeah, that's now they now have a new agreement for what the stage is going to be. Um, now, whether he has to pay out the the prizes for the stage, probably not. Um, it's his prerogative, I guess. Whether he wants to find a certain team or not, that's probably going to be a little bit more difficult. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him try it. It's it's also kind of opaque because we don't know the exact contractual arrangements, or I don't at least between the teams and the Giro, you know, like Sagan obviously might have a direct contractual relationship with RCS because he's a special rider there 
getting to come to the race, but um, I don't know what the actual league contract is between the teams and RCS if there is one at all. Uh, just, just some additional context as well is RCS in this condensed calendar, they got shafted. Uh, I said this when the UCI's calendar came out for the COVID season. Someone was going to lose because in a condensed calendar, it's just always going to be some races are going to be in an unfortunate position. But the RCS ones really did get shafted. And this Giro field is very, very weak. I don't mean in terms of watts per kilo. I mean in terms of like brand power. Um, apart from Sagan, who obviously RCS, they gave him a contract, I guess, to come here a long time ago. Um, apart from Sagan, there were no really big names here except for Thomas, who was supposed to be going to the Tour de France and then crashed out. So there's no Froome, no Bernal, no Roglic, no Pogaccia, no... Um, yeah, a lot of the big names aren't here because the, you know, Quintana, because the Giro was put in a really bad spot in the UCI's calendar and ASO got the cream of the crop positions. Tour de France was earlier when the weather was better. Uh, the Vuelta was then later than the Tour, which meant that the Tour de France riders like Roglic can then go to the Vuelta. We now see Froome and uh, Co there now. And even the Lombardia had its weakest field ever, also owned by RCS. So that's the context for Venue maybe being a little bit frustrated in that sense. So you got that frustration for him. Second frustration is probably that there's a pandemic going on right now and organising a three-week cycling event that goes around a country in the midst of a pandemic, I assume, is quite difficult. And there's also no guarantee that he's going to make money out of this this year. Um, I've seen a lot of people saying, acting like the, the race organiser, well, RCS, I mean, ASO maybe with the Tour de France, that is a little bit of a cash cow by all accounts, but RCS with the Giro, as if there's some sort of monopoly banker meme just sitting on like a hoard of cash. I'm not sure that's exactly the case. Um, going into this COVID Giro, they they were taking a risk that, you know, these cost a lot of money, these events to put on. It's not, not just as simple as... Like they're actually putting money on the line, RCS. And if it gets cancelled early, um, I, I assume it's pretty difficult to get insurance for these sort of things. It gets cancelled early, or there's limited interest. There's no spectators, so there's ad low advertiser money as well. Um, maybe they don't make their money back. Maybe they take a loss, but they they proceed on. They put in a lot of work and get the race on anyway. So I have to commend them for that. Yes, the COVID controls haven't been ideal either but that's that's some of the context behind maybe venue and, and rcs and then the context behind the riders is the cpa is straight up just an incompetent organization and we've seen this for, throughout this whole season it's sort of coming to an to a head they have seemingly no mechanism for act proper rider representation in terms of one rider one vote in terms of having actual separation from the UCI and the race organisers, particularly from the UCI, though, and just from communicating, just basic day-to-day uh, -day communication with the riders seems to be a real problem with the CPA. Um, so that's an issue as well that's been rearing its head. And then safety in general and just a general feeling from the riders that they kind of get screwed a lot, which they're probably not wrong. Uh, that there's probably substandard safety in a lot of these races, particularly in this season. But that's the context. I'll give my opinion in a minute. I'm not supposed to give my opinion, to quote uh, someone on the internet. 
But Benji, what's your take on on what what happened today? Is it is anyone in the wrong? Both in the wrong? Is it just a big shame, or is some parties more to blame than others? It's hard for me to judge, knowing that I'm not in the situation of a cyclist and that I don't one hundred percent know how the CPA works behind the scenes. What it looks like is a bit unprofessional for me in the sense that they've got a Telegram chat group of all places to decide stuff like this the evening before. And if you don't know what Telegram is, and I know Lantern Rouge didn't know what Telegram was until an hour ago, but Lantern... I well, still don't know what it is, man. <laughs> Lantern, what it is, is um, it's like a WhatsApp group, but Telegram is known for having solid, solid encryption behind the scenes to make it sure that all users can be anonymous if they want to, the messages aren't saved and so forth. While on WhatsApp, there's a real danger for that, and that could be used against you in the future. But Telegram itself, it's basically like having a WhatsApp group, and they've got a Telegram group instead on, um, well, for the riders. Some of the riders have, some of the teams have some riders that are representative of that team in that group and decide for the team in there. They've used it at the Tour de France, I think. I think Oliver Nassen and Larry Wolbaz are in it for Argisela Mondial, and I think we spoke about it during the Tour de Pologne crash, unfortunately, uh, two, three months ago. Ooh, time flies. Anyway, uh, so that's where they do stuff, and I feel like that's a bit unprofessional because it's just it's just like a WhatsApp group. Come on, it's, it's an informal place to do stuff like this, and I feel like that's maybe not anything related to the discussion here, but it adds on to it because if it's discussed in such a, an informal place, then... You obviously will have no real history of what was said. And as a consequence, you've got, for example, Nibali, who was at the finish, who went to the signature this morning, thinking the race would start. And then someone came to him and told him, well, we have no race today. There's not going to be a race today. It's a CPA decision. That man has a riders union. That is a CPA. And that CPA has his colleagues in there deciding for him and he doesn't know what is being decided for him which is to me an issue and should be handled better because if significant amount of riders don't know this morning what was decided in that group the evening before there is an issue there because then a number of riders are deciding for the majority of riders maybe for example you've got a team that didn't open their telegram group for an evening it's very much possible, and apparently the representative, the Italian representative after, afterwards said that 16 of the 18 teams were agreeing. For me, that's BS. You've got to be anonymous, uh, unanimous in this, not anonymous, unanimous in this, since at the moment... But that's not even true. Side, well, Bahrain, Bora, Ineos, there's three yeah, that have said Correct. we wanted to continue and do the full stage. Yeah, well, um, apparently, according to the representative of CPA, they've got 16 of the 18 teams on board. Just let's say it was 16. Let's say it was 16. That's still not good for me. It needs to be unanimous because obviously the teams that are benefiting from this stage being longer are not going to agree with it. And the people that are having a disadvantage of the stage being longer are going to, well, agree with it being shortened. and. There's a bundle of teams that don't give a fuck about today's stage and are going to say, sure, it can be shorter. I, I, I want to get to my home sooner. And I think there's plenty of teams that are the latter. 
I think that Ineos is clearly one of the teams that wanted to fill stage today because, in my opinion, and probably in, I think, the majority of people that watched the races for the last couple of weeks, Kelderman has been getting weaker over the last three weeks compared to Hart, who is getting better and better over the last three weeks. The more kilometers that are ridden, the better it is for Hart. And I think that's why Ineos has a benefit here. And if one team doesn't agree with it, then it's not unanimous, and then it's unfair competition in the end. That's my opinion on it. Maybe I'm a bit strict on it, but if one team does not agree, that means that team has a plan for today, and that team thinks that they benefit out of the stage. And if it's not true, extreme weather protocol or some some proper rule that they're not going to race today, then there's no reason for me to have it stopped because no, but not, not everybody agreed. And for me, that's the issue. If all teams agreed, fine, I don't care. It's a dangerous precedent because in the future, every single stage that is 200 plus kilometers with rain and 13 degrees, according to the weather forecast that I looked up, well, then you're going to have a reason to complain. And well, since it has happened before, they can decide to do it again. Now, I'm all for riders being able to strike. I'm all for people being able to strike. But I don't like it when, for example, one person strikes and it influences another rider who was willing and wanted to ride today. And that's why I disagree with it not being a unanimous system. And that's what I don't like about this whole situation. I think I don't want to belittle the riders' general safety concerns, but today it's pretty clear to me that a, a, probably a large subset of the riders in the pro peloton turned up and they were thinking, what is the point of a 260-kilometer long stage transition stage? We have nothing to gain from it. We are tired. We got to our hotel late last night. We cannot be bothered with this stage. Why are we doing this? Please shorten it. It had nothing to do with some sort of immune system <laughs> COVID stuff that the CPA put out on, on Twitter. Um, and I think, but that was their rationale for it. And I think people said to me, "Oh, well, you, you got to be, you got to support workers' right to strike, one hundred percent." But workers don't just strike. Do you think workers who want a pay rise, the first time that the employer finds out that they want a pay rise, is when they're at the gate refusing to work? Usually, when people strike. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if, it, if this doesn't happen, usually they inform the employer, hey, we want better working conditions, we want more money, or we want X, Y, Z. And they tell them, these are our demands, we would like these. And if you don't comply with our demands, we reserve our right to uh, strike and take uh, labor, labor action. And that then allows the employer to say, fair enough, I, see to, I agree with your demands and your requests, and I'll provide you with those things. Or... If they don't, in a reasonable time, you then strike and uh, actually use that essential label, labor tool. Um, whereas that's not what happened today. Uh, according to Venny, which, again, could be wrong, but judging from the Telegram stuff, it certainly doesn't seem like there was a fixed decision made last night by the uh, CPA that was communicated to, to RCS. certainly doesn't seem like that. So he's not been given any time to adjust the stage. 
we told you in the preview podcast three weeks ago, and we only looked at the profile of the Giro then for the first time. Anyone doing the race should have looked at it even before. We told you three weeks ago, this stage is fucking stupid. <laughs> I said 260, 250 kilometers. What are they thinking? That's a, such a long transition stage. What's the point of that? I said that three weeks ago. And they've had plenty of time. That, and then they're saying, oh, well, it's, it's after XYZ stages. They were in the roadbook too. They were in, they, we had these 600 kilometers and the amount of climbing in the previous three stages. We knew it was probably going to be pretty chilly. Like, this is not new information. So I've got no problem with if the CPA had come out and said to the RCS, even, even on the second rest day, I still think that's more than enough time. On the second rest day, if they said, hey, this year has been really hard, you need to shorten that transition stage for XYZ valid reasons and to about 150Ks or something. And uh, if you don't do that, if you don't shorten it, we will refuse to ride the race. So just letting you know, like we were, and um, so that at least he could have the opportunity to actually tr- change it and change the profile around. But they couldn't, so they just turn up today and they say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're not racing it, so you've got to shorten it. So it's just a complete cluster. Um, and I think that goes to the, the problems with the CPA, their inability to communicate, their inability to create some sort of unified message to race organisers, etc. Like it seems like even RCS is confused about where this messaging is coming from. Um, we've got team directors who, are unfortunately, I think, are sort of going at some of their riders on Twitter being like, hey, this isn't, wasn't a team decision, this was the rider's decision and the, their capacity in, as a CPA representative. I think, ironically, it would be better for the race organisers and the UCI if the riders had a really strong union that was competent because at least then they would communicate with the race organisers early and say, if you don't do this, we're not riding the stage, change it, fix it. Um, whereas RCS never got that communication, it seems. And even if they only got it last night, just after the Stelvio stage at 9pm, and it was sort of a, hey, with some rumblings here, Still not very much time to do anything. So um, that's my view on it. I think the riders, if it, it wasn't any extreme weather protocol or anything like that, it disadvantaged Bora, Ineos, and Bahrain McLaren, who Pell Bilbao's obviously in the Lacole kit and he loves the long, hard stage. So it seems unfair to those teams and it seems like really just, the riders trying to take advantage a bit of a shitty situation and then Venny, he just acceded to it. Um, and it's just a real shame because the Giro was going pretty well. I know we had the probably the poor COVID precautions early on, but ultimately it didn't really result in a wide COVID outbreak. It looks like we're getting to Milan and then this happens. And really doing the Stelvio descent is way more dangerous for the riders' health than doing this stage today. And I don't mean in terms of crashing, I mean in terms of like wind chill, etc. if we're going to run the Definitely for immune riders. system suppression. Yeah, particularly for the Sunweb riders that couldn't do up their, uh, do up their jackets. So, yeah, I think it's a real shame. And I'm not really sure anything was achieved except to worsen relations between RCS, 
the riders and maybe even the CPA and a certain subset of their own riders who don't feel like they were adequately informed or consulted. So not done in a particularly good way. Um, but I'm not saying shut up and ride riders, not saying that at all. I'm just I'm saying be really strong, communicate a little bit earlier, and if RCS don't accede to it, to your demands or requests, 100% strike. But this wasn't really the way to, to go about it. And ultimately, this stage was not dangerous in any way. It's something that a lot of riders didn't want to do. Listen, no one's winning this stage except for a break, if anyone wants to go, or Sagan and Damar. So no one else, all, half the teams aren't on GC. Asia Duar and Lotto weren't really going to try and get in the break too much, except for Arme. They got no one on GC. There's other teams as well that don't really care. So they've got the stage to Sestriere tomorrow. Ineos are going to light it up. Probably going to win, or Hindley will win the stage. And then you've got the TT in Milan. So for a lot of riders, their Giro's over. So they're like, fuck this. I'm not doing 260Ks in the rain. I, I would have thought the same thing. So, and of course, when it got shortened, if I was one of the riders, I'd be like, yeah, that's good, of course. But it's not really, uh, it's not great. But yeah, have you anything else, Benji, that's come out on Twitter while I've been ranting for quite a while? Let us know in the comments down below what you think uh, about this stage and whether you think this stage was ridiculous. Just to remind you, by the way, 254k transition stage was pretty normal back in the day. 2014 or 13, they had one of these long stages to Cavendish one in the Giro. So um, it used to be pretty normal to have long, long transition stage like this. Maybe not straight after the Stelvio, but yeah. Anything, any new insights that say that uh, <laughs> that contradict what we said so far, Benji? Nothing really coming out on social media, really. I think there's going to be plenty that comes out in the next couple of hours. And we'll probably have a bit more of a different perspective maybe after seeing some of that. But so far on what we've based on so far, this is what we've got to say. So we can't just add much more right now. And um, we're also not really in the position to in-depthly judge the organization or the riders because we don't really know the full situation yet. But all in all, I think we've got a pretty fair assessment so far. I think we can look at tomorrow's stage after saying that we had one attack in the GC today, and that was in the final kilometer, we saw an attack of Talgeg and Hart trying to get seconds, but it was quickly closed down. But I was looking at him for the last three kilometers. I saw that Ineos was moving up on the right side of the road with him sitting in second wheel, and I knew it. I knew something was coming, and he tried a sneaky move in the last 200, 300, 400 meters. I don't know how far it was. But it was quickly closed down. People were watching him as well from other teams. So they were clearly aware that he was sneaking to the front slowly but surely. But it does make me kind of hyped for that battle again. And all in all, we've talked about plenty of stuff today. But tomorrow we've got a stage somewhat battered by the weather. And, well, not really the weather. The weather wasn't the problem. The fact that they couldn't ride into France. 190 kilometers is the new stage. The Coldaniello was taken out of that. And the first half of this new stage is flat. Then we start the climbing. It's a bit of a false flat uphill at about 2-3% for the next couple of 30 kilometers into the start of the first time Sestriere. Looking at these climbs, I think it's the um, first one that is not super steep. It's 4% average. So technically not that large. But then again, 
it's a bit of a fake news climb because this profile says that it's 4% for the 32 kilometers sestriere climb, which is not really the case. You could say that the last portion is only sestriere. So let's say 5 to 5.5, 6% is the actual climbing section, the last 11 kilometers of this 32 kilometer climb. But obviously, the first portion of that is going to hurt as well. You're probably going to see the likes of uh, Ineos trying to move it up there or Sunweb trying to control it. But I think that it's going to be Ineos lighting up the stage, like you said. After the first time Sestriere, we've got two times the same Sestriere, which is a 6.9 kilometer, 7.2% climb. And this is a bit harder than the other Sestriere we just had. And this might still have some action. All in all, this stage is easier than what was before, but it's relatively easier. It's not easy. And I think a lot of people are confusing it with this first Sestriere that is being placed three times. But that's not the case. It's firstly a mediocre Sestriere and then two relatively harder Sestrieres. But all in all, it's still not the hardest of climbing. So Ineos will have to launch early and have to start early and with full force if they want to drop Keldermann. And it's the last day they can do so. And I think that is going to work. You think so as well? Yep, Keldermann is getting dropped. Okay. I think that I am going to pick Gegenhardt as stage winner accordingly, and I think you're going to do the same, or not? Yep, correct. Okay, so because uh, it's not so because lo- it's not so long a climb that I think Gegenhardt is so much better in, in the finale than than Hindley. Uh, so even if Hindley's on his wheel, as long as Gegenhardt's not going to like Stelvio, this isn't as hard as the Stelvio stage. So um, by any by any shot, so I think Gaganard, if he's got anything left in the legs, he's beating Hindley in an uphill sprint finish, and um, I think he's going to win win the stage tomorrow. Whether he gaps Hindley, I don't really see that, but he doesn't have to. He really doesn't have to gap Hindley because he's going to yeah, beat him in the TT. So that was the problem with we discussed that at nauseum yesterday. That was the problem with Hindley not attacking him. So really, he only has to worry about Kelderman putting time into Kelderman once he's done that, and then take the bonus seconds on the line as well when he beats Hindley, so he won't be worried about him at all, I don't think. There's some steeper sections in the Sestriere, the two, the, uh, the latter two, like there's a couple of Ks at 10 and 9%, the fourth and uh, sixth Ks, I think, or the fifth and sixth Ks of them, so they could be good launch pads, but I think Ineos, they're going to just put Dennis and the TT boys on the front for that first uh, low-gradient Sestriere and um, really ramp it up probably in the last third of it. And it'll be interesting to see what Sunweb can do. Because uh, Sunweb aren't going to... Sunweb tomorrow should not pace with Hamilton, Hager or Ehrman yeah. at all. They should obviously ride defensively. That's different to what they did on Stelvio where they were trying to drop Almeida. So they should not be burning those guys. It'll be interesting to see what those guys can do in a defensive role chasing the Ineos guys. Now, if Dennis brings any of the form he had on Stelvio to Sestriere, I'm, a bit, I'm worried for Wilco Kelderman. And, um, yeah, I just think the Unios guys are maintaining their form very well at the end of this Giro. But they've had a rest day pretty much today. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> who knows what will happen. We saw Wilco Kelderman smiling in the Maglio Rosa. I can't wait. It's a very interesting battle. Put t- what happened today aside, tomorrow's stage is a cracker. We've got three guys within about 15 seconds of each other or something on GC. And it's, yeah, it's going to be an unbelievable fight. Ancestriere, and once again, we should be grateful we've got an amazing stage like this at the end of this Grand Tour 
and then even going into Milan, hopefully we've got some competitive tension there as well. Uh, but yeah, can't wait for the Sestriere stage tomorrow. 190k should be a cracker. Moving on to the Vuelta Espana stage four. This was also going to be a sprint stage like in the Giro. 190k's from Ieja to De Los Caballeros. And I must say, I don't know who got on the break, Benji. I'm not sounding very professional there, but I, I did watch the last... Well, again, we're not going to lie to you. I knew the last 10Ks was where this stage is going to happen, so I only watched there, but Benji is more professional than me. Do you know who cleaned up any of the intermediate <laughs> sprint points or what in the break? <laughs> Am I more professional than you? Well, uh, I uh, I was watching the Giro and I saw that Gagan Hart crossed the line and suddenly in my ear I was hearing that we were in the final two and a half kilometers of the Vuelta. So I looked at the Vuelta from two and a half kilometers from the long. <laughs> All right, well, I'll do a better job than Benji then. <laughs> anyway, the break, oh. it was a break. It, it, was a, it was a suicide break with some of the pro con, the wildcard teams, Burgos, etc. Sorry to those guys' names, we're not reading you out. They got brought <laughs> back. And it was actually quite an interesting finale, uh, to be honest. There's actually a few talking points here. Uh, we thought Ackerman and Philipson would do quite well, and the quick step train took over. And I'm talking the whole, we, we mentioned this in the preview podcast, the whole quick step team is a lead out train. Um, Cataneo, Garrison, Murku, Steinler, Stibar, Cavagnar. Like, that is obscene <laughs> lead out for Sam Bennett. And they just took over at like 3Ks, or 2.7Ks to go. Uh, obviously, they're competitors to the sprint to Pascal Ackerman and Jasper Philipson and Marechko. This is one of the stages Marechko could have done quite well. I know we've made a lot of fun out of him, but on the flat stages, he's still really, really quick. The uh, small Italian for CCC, a quick step took over. Um, and they just had a, a plethora of riders. Although, it's interesting, Benji, how having, and I've noticed this quite a few times about Quickstep, having so many riders is useful to a point where those riders each can't really go as quick as maybe another guy who pulls a really quick turn on another team to get their rider into position into a, a really pivotal corner. And there was a pivotal left-hand corner with like 350 metres or 300 metres to go maybe. Um, and Philipson had leading him out, I think, one of the Oliveira boys and Rubashenko. Yeah, Rubashenko, who underrated rider, by the way. But, yeah, Philipson had them leading him out. But he didn't have like a full lead out. He just had that sort of like Caleb Ewan just has Kluger to punch him into position and then he has to fight for himself. Similar thing with Philipson, who's also a shorter guy. Quickstep have a plethora of riches. They go into, into the Flamme Rouge. They, with 1,500 to go, they'd actually try to almost look like they'd split the race. They went on the right-hand gutter, and it looked like they were almost trying to create an echelon scenario with the amount of guys they had, and they were fanned out kind of two abreast. It was a little bit strange, actually. And then they get into the Flamme Rouge. They've got three lead-out men plus Bennett. They then get into the finale, and I don't know who, who's the second-last man, Benji. Is it Steimler or Stieber? I think it's Steimler. Yes, I think it's okay, Steimler. Anyway. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. It's either one of those two. And then Morku's obviously the last man, the Danish lead-out man. But they go into this left-hand corner, and it's quickly become apparent that UAE have got the jump on them because from 700 to about 350, 400, they've not really increased the pace, and they've got too many lead-out men. And I'm doing the maths. I'm like, you guys are going to the last 400, and you – or 450, and your second-to-last lead-out man hasn't started his turn yet, which is supposed to be at least 150 metres or nearly 200, and then you've got Murku to do another another 100, 125. Well, then that, <laughs> that leaves Bennett with like 
50 metres, quick maths. So that's not going to work. As well as you've got this pivotal corner with 350 to go, UAE get to jump on them. I think Ackerman was moving up a little bit too, and Marechko was well positioned as well. And Bennett realizes this. Bennett, Bennett rode this last 500 meters. Like this is why he should get paid the big bucks, and he's look top in the top two best sprinters in the world, alongside you and Neck and Neck. I can't really pick between them. Um, unbelievable from him, and the, the foresight to get out of his lead-out train, realize they're impeding him and slowing him down as Philipson's taking this better line through the left-hand corner, kind of like what. Uh, Buani, no, not Buani, sorry, what Gaviria did to Damar in Vuelta Burgos stage two through the right hander. Philipson tried a similar thing today and Bennett quickly reacts to it. In that corner, jumps right, trying to get out of Murku's wheel. So he, he, he immediately is like, Murku's going to do nothing for me in this sprint and he's going to only slow me down. And they get out of the corner. Bennett's got clear air ahead of him, or maybe one lead-out man who's not really – he was kind of done. It might have been the guy that pulled off. Philipson kicks really hard out of the corner. Gets a jump immediately off Ackerman, gets distance, and we've got like 200 to go maybe, 225. So he jumps pretty early, but it was kind of a downhill not, – not like a proper downhill, but like I'm talking like a little downhill roller into a then flat section, nothing dangerous or anything. And Bennett's like, i got to close this gap myself. And luckily, he jumped off his lead-out man. He starts sprinting. He's got uh, at least a 15-meter gap. He's getting pretty much no draft as he's closing down Philipson. He jumps out of that Ackerman group, close gets to Philipson's wheel, comes around him to the left-hand side, and actually beats him pretty comfortably to the line by maybe or half a bike length or a third of a bike length. Um, and so having a foresight, Sam Bennett, to... Realise his lead-out train has not used their riders quickly enough or aggressively enough to keep him in good position into that last corner. And really, they should have just been leaving him with Merku alone, fresh into that last corner, to then punch him out of that corner and then for him to sprint. And then it would have been pretty easy, I think. But good work from Philipson without the lead-out. Rubashenko setting him up quite well. He put himself in the best position to take this stage, and he damn well near did. But, yeah, Sam Bennett hats off to him, but some flaws in the uh, quick step lead out. But who came Who came third, Benji? Kind of our, one of our guys who we've teased a bit, but I actually kind of do like him as a rider. Yeah, Jakob Moreshko, and we've spoken about him quite a few times on the podcast already because he's known to be the person that gets a lot of victories in Asian races behind the scenes, some continental races, and never really broke through on the real level, I think he got second in a Tour de France stage once in a millimeter sprint against Kittle back in the day, but I could be wrong on that, but I still remember that somewhat. Either way, it could be the Giro. Anyway, uh, Mareshko has some history in Wilter as well as a follow-up, but he's never really broken too pro- properly, but what is an aspect to him is the fact that he sprints like Caleb Ewan in his early days. Ewan has changed a bit over the years, I feel like, but Ewan, in his early years, was with his chin on his front tire. And Moreshko literally does the same. Cavendish early years as well. And he uses that aerodynamics. And I think it really worked on this stage because he needs that acceleration after that corner to try and get a, a, a grip on the sprint. And since that corner was so close to the finish line, I think that benefits him so much because Moreshko is known for having a, a real kick in the sprint, but losing it quickly, that kick. And that's why he doesn't win too often. And also because of the fact that his positioning is somewhat meh 
But that last corner, we've spoken about it. The Koenig was slowing down in that corner more than some other people, and they didn't really get in a good position there. But Bennett at the finish line was apparently saying that there was some dirt, or it looked like there was dirt on the floor in the last corner, and he didn't want to be overly risky. And that's why they slowed down a bit. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's really the reason that his leadouts were slowing down as well. I think all in all, they weren't really going full speed into that corner. And eventually that indeed led to a bit of an odd sprint for the Koenig Quickstep and not really masterclass of a leadout, I would say. But it does matter. Bennett is miles above the rest at the moment. And he clearly was the best sprinter at the end here as well. Philipson had such a, a proper kick after that corner, launching early because Ryaboshenko launched him relatively perfectly in that last section and that corner was perfect for Philipson and it wasn't really for the Koenig but Bennett found a way on that side of the road and got past and eventually all was uh, all was said and delivered but I would really like to give a shout out to the fifth rider on the stage as well Kerbin Tyson he's a rider at Lotto Sudal I called him yesterday for top five on Twitter and uh, I'm glad he did I also want to point some so, well, I just want to point at some other riders in the top 10 there. We've got Moschetti, who won against Akamon in Trofeo Palma or something at the start of the season. Hasn't really broken through yet. I think in uh, Hungary, he lost a stage from Mareczko in a sprint. And Max Kanter, who has not really been at a high level since having an injury two years ago and being a really promising sprinter back in the day. He looks to be coming back a bit, has a proper seventh spot here, but... Honestly, this finish is really hard to judge sprint because that last corner decided a lot for a lot of riders. And if you're not in the first margin of that corner, then you're basically a victim of what is happening in front of you. And I think that some people might have bad positioning because of that. Someone that didn't look like he was overly strong today was Ackermann. But I think that's also because that last corner was so close to the finish line. Ackermann has not been amazing or outrageous this season, but... His weakness for me was the same weakness he had last year at the Giro. And we saw that in the stage that Ewan won last year at the Giro, where the corner was close to the finish line. Ewan had a better kick and was able to outsprint him. Right here, exactly the same situation. Akman does not have the kick that other sprinters has. He's got the muscle. He needs to launch a tiny bit early and sometimes doesn't. But I still believe that Akman doesn't really have the kick that others have. But on the opposite side, we've spoken about previous stages that we've already seen that Ackermann also doesn't really have the long sprints anymore. So it's hard to judge Ackermann at the moment. And I hope that he pulls through in the coming weeks or maybe next season and finds a proper form again to try and display something like that. Other riders in the top 10, someone I didn't see coming, Emmanuel Morin for Kofidis. I'm curious what he can do in the coming days and was fourth and sixth in the sprint in Okolo Slovenska, which is a Tour of Slovenia, Slovakia, both of them apparently. Uh, combined in one and yeah that's basically it maybe a disappointment for me is Jona Barasturi I hoped more for him I have him as my favorite for the last stage of this Vuelta but that's gonna be pretty tough and all in all not sure that can happen but yeah we've got a pretty good sprint stage and I really enjoyed it despite all the madness that's happened before it in the Giro but yeah Bennett displayed what we expected for him you said that Bennett was going to win. I said that Bennett was going to win, but I felt like I wanted to go for Philipson in a biased way as well. 
and therefore I picked Philipson and eventually Sam Bennett first, Philipson second, and Moreshko third, Ackermann fourth, and Herben Tyson, hopefully a proper revelation in sprinting for Belgium as well on fifth position. So doesn't happen often, two Belgians in a mass sprint in the top five in a Grand Tour. It's crazy. Tomorrow's stage from Huesca to Sabinanigo, 184Ks, and it's got a few climbs in it. So Roly Parkour for no categorized climbs for the first 110, then an easy-ish cat to 13.3Ks at 4.7% average gradient. And I say easy-ish, but now I'm looking at it, it looks kind of like a fake news climb. There's a descent in it. Um, I dare say there's some steeper parts. Then that goes straight into a cat 3, the Alto Di Fanlo, 6.3Ks at 4.5%, then a descent, the first intermediate sprint, and that's why the sprinters do not win the points classification in the Vuelta Espana because it's after those two climbs. And then they, the last main climb of the day, the Alto de Petralba, 9Ks at 5%. That shouldn't worry too many riders. And then descent into the finish, hundred, and then in the last, I think, K, not even the last K, actually, the last 600 metres, there is another Muro. And um, I'm going to give you another name, Benji. Oh, I don't know how hard this actual finale is. Do you know how steep it is exactly? The actual finish line it doesn't look overly steep. And I'm focusing that on the stuff that I see on La Flamme Rouge, but I don't have exact gradients for the last two kilometers. I'm going to try and look it up while I think about potential favorites for the stage and tell about whether the fact that a breakaway could win or not. I don't know. All in all, I think that they could for once. And it's a bit of a double-sided thing once again, because you've got a limited amount of stage in this Grand Tour. And unfortunately, we haven't really said it yet, but the Tumale stage is out of La Vuelta, so they don't have as many real mountain stages. It's still a mountain stage, but it goes on to the Formigal instead of the Tumale and only has one proper mountain at the finish line. So they've got less to work with and therefore I'm unsure whether they would use stages like this more often than we are expecting because Roglic in the first stage interview was pretty clear that he was going to try and fight for every single stage and that was a bit of a surprise to me. Now I apparently do not have a gradient of the finish line so I guess we're going to have to deal without it. <laughs> I don't have anything else for that. It, it doesn't go up too steep, it seems. I think it's about 4, 5, 5.5%. I don't think I can give it too much more on the profile that I see right now, but I could be wrong. I'll try to update it on Twitter if I see that it's super steep at the end. But do you think a break can win, or do you think it's GC? I think probably, probably GC. And uh, I'm going with... I'm going with... Alexander Rubashenko after a nice lead out today. I can't remember who I said in the preview. It wouldn't surprise me to see the usual suspects, Baglioli, Roglic, Canapaz, Dan Martin, Groschardner, all up there. Not going to surprise me to see them all there. It's a sprint to the line. Anything can happen because it's not so long. I'm not seeing it for Roglic. Now, I could be made to look silly. I think it could be a more... I'm, look, I'm looking at the really punchy guys. So Groschardner. And Rybushenko are the other ones I'd be looking at more so. And even Dan Martin as well, a flesh specialist who's looking good. Who's your pick? 
I think I'm going to have similar names, to be honest. We've got Bajoli and we've got Groshartner, the two names that we named at the preview for this stage. And I think if it comes down to the peloton, they're going to be up there. But it's hard for me to judge Groshartner on this because we know that he won that first stage at Burgos. That has an exactly the same finish, but he also didn't sprint for it. He got away and he did it in a very twisty road and it wasn't really a... It was a punchy attack, but I think that with real punches, it's going to be tough. Maybe the likes of a Robert Stannard is a name that you would be having on this and probably forgot about for a second, because I think that's also a name you picked on the preview, but I could be very wrong in that. But if I really have to put the name on it, then I'm going to go for Bajoli. I've got trust in my man. And worst case scenario, if the Peloton doesn't go full force, which I sincerely doubt, if the pace is decent, I'm going to have to go for my homeboy at Amburu, but that's a bias pick for this one. So don't look at that one too much. On paper, I'd say I'm that. changing. Yeah. Oh, boy. What is it? I'm changing my pick to Dan Martin. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't think, think I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be too contrarian. I think, I think Dan Martin's going to... I think it's too easy for Dan Martin. Yeah. I don't know. Yawushenko's a good pick, to be honest, but can he hold on on the climbs? <laughs> Yeah, I don't have a strong. I would uh, full disclosure. I won't, I won't be betting because it seems like a bit of a lottery to me tomorrow. Um, it's too short a climb for any one team to control it, so I wouldn't be betting on it too much. Unless, I'll be betting unless because Rubi- I like burning money. If Rubishen goes like 150 or something stupid odds, obviously, then maybe yeah. But no, nah, otherwise, I don't think I will be. But that's all from us today. If there's anything you can take away from today's pod, it's not that we are anti-rider safety. Actually, quite the opposite. I think we've been quite vocal about safety issues for riders. Uh, consistently, maybe before the podcast even started. I remember when the Tour de Polonia Stage 2 happened, I could not believe that the riders did not neutralise that stage because the same barrier issues were there on Stage 2 that were in place on Stage 1 at Tour de Polonia in the Fabio Jakobsen of a tragic or terrible crash. So we are, we've, been, we've been cognizant of rider safety issues and we, we hear them and I agree that there needs to be much more done with safety in the race, even in the Giro with the Wackerman, um helicopter barrier incident. It was just terrible, and I hope he's recovering okay. Um, so that's why I really would like to see a stronger CPA, and I do feel for the riders particularly that they feel like their voice might not be being heard on both sides, even Nibali today is like, what's happening, etc. cetera. Um, but generally... As a general principle, I think cycling and safety, cycling and safety, safety and pro cycling has a long way to go, and um, CPA needs to improve. And the riders are probably underpaid. A lot of these guys, the yeah, sure the top guys get paid a lot, but a lot of these guys having to slog it out and do a two sixty k stage in the rain today, if it went ahead, would a pretty unpaid millions of euro. That being said. Neither Benji nor I think today's stage was dangerous. It didn't enliven the extreme weather protocol and the RCS were not given sufficient time to manage it properly and get a new, a proper parkour, etc. And they were caught on the hop. And it even left riders in the rain for quite a while suited up because they'd started and then didn't start. So just to reiterate our thoughts on that. But we'll see you tomorrow. Sestriere, don't forget it. Back into some GC action. Thanks as always. This was our pre recap of Giro Stage 19 
welter stage four brought to you by the